Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Please open with me in your Bibles to the uh, New Testament book of Galatians. Uh, Today we are going to be in Galatians uh, chapter 5, and our scripture text is going to be just three verses, verses 16 through 18. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find this on page 975 of your Pew Bibles. Galatians chapter 5. We are in verses 16 through 18. Let's now hear uh, this, the word of God. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. This ends this reading in God's word. Let's cry out to God for his help as we uh, consider this passage together. Let's pray. Lord, our God in heaven, we <clears throat> believe that this is not the word of man, but it is in truth the very word of the living God. This is your word to us, Lord, ever relevant, ever true, ever necessary for us in our lives today. Lord, send your spirit, the very spirit that is spoken of in these verses to us. We pray that he might be the spirit of understanding. Grant us, O Lord, that we would know what your word says and that we would receive it not merely as good things for our mind, but as vital, life-giving truth for our souls. Apply it, Lord, to the very depths of our hearts. We plead with you, be our help, our refuge, our strength. We pray this in Jesus' name, Uh, amen. Paul's great concern uh, so far in the book of Galatians has generally been with the doctrine of justification. How is it that we, sinners, can be made right with a holy God? On what basis do we stand in the presence of God, not as guilty, but as innocent and righteous? And the great uh, point of the book of Galatians so far has been that we stand not on the basis of our own works, our own law-keeping, because we are sinners, but rather we stand on the basis of Jesus Christ's complete work in our place. Christ's righteousness, Christ's blood, alone satisfies the justice of God, and it is in Him alone that we live. It's the doctrine of justification. But in this book that is so concerned with the gospel of Christ, we see that Paul is not only concerned with our justification, but also with our sanctification. That is, 
Not only how are we made right with God, but how then are we to lead and live the Christian life? And we began that last week uh, in verses 13 through 15, where we saw that the freedom that we experience in Christ is not a freedom to selfishly use on ourselves, living however we want to live. The gospel is never an excuse for license, but rather we are to use our freedom to, in love, serve one another. For that command to love your neighbor as yourself is indeed the summary of the law. So our freedom is to lead to us serving others and obeying the law of God which he has given us. But the thought of our sanctification continues further now in these verses that we have before us today. Verses 16 through 18. How is it that we are to live the Christian life? And in these verses here, uh, again, Paul progresses with this thought. And in particular here, we're going to see three different absolute truths of the Christian life. Three different things that are absolutely true about the Christian life. And that's going to be what will structure today's sermon. Uh, First of all, we are going to see the absolute necessity of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, the absolute reality of inward conflict. Third, the absolute certainty of final victory. The absolute necessity of the Holy Spirit, the absolute reality of inward conflict, the absolute certainty of final victory. Three absolute truths of the Christian life. So first of all, the absolute necessity of the Holy Spirit. Last week we saw that we are in love to serve one another that we are to seek to obey the law of God. But how is it that sinners like you and me can ever do these things? Well, here in verse 16, we are introduced to something that is so vital and so important. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit alone that we live the Christian life. And in fact, seven times now, from verse 16 through the end of chapter 5, the Holy Spirit is going to be mentioned. The Spirit is absolutely vital. Now let's think about this for a moment. Uh, In the the whole scope of biblical teaching, who is the Holy Spirit? Well, uh, we confessed earlier in the Nicene Creed that the Holy Spirit is uh, the third person of the triune God. He's The same in substance, equal in power and glory with the Father and with the Son. And yet, in God's purposes, the Holy Spirit's function or role is to bring to completion what God has purposed. And so even in the original creation, it was the Spirit who, as it were, gave life to it. And similarly, in God's new creation, His redeeming activity, it is the Holy Spirit who comes and brings life to it. And so when it comes to redemption, it is the Father who plans, the Son who accomplishes, 
and the Spirit who applies that redemption to us. Now, the greatest gift, dear friends, of the new covenant in Jesus Christ, the greatest gift of this new covenant, the consummate gift, is the gift of the Holy Spirit. This was the gift that was anticipated by the prophets of the Old Testament. In the latter days, Joel said, the Spirit is going to be poured out on all flesh. Ezekiel spoke of of a breath, a spirit that would give life to dry bones. Jeremiah spoke of the law that would be written not simply on outward tablets, but on men's hearts, indeed through uh, the Spirit. Christ Jesus anticipated the giving of the Spirit. The Spirit is uh, this living water. The Spirit is the comforter that Christ promised to His people who would be given when He left. And so, when we come actually to Acts chapter 2 and the events of Pentecost, these are some of the most significant events in in the entire Bible because what happened there on that day of Pentecost after Christ had died and risen and ascended to the right hand of the Father was on that day, King Jesus in His power and authority gave His Holy Spirit unto His church. It came upon His church in in power. The Spirit poured out upon all people. And so the age in which we live, this age after the completed work of Christ, is truly the age of the Spirit. Now, every blessing of Almighty God comes to us through the Holy Spirit who now indwells us. It is this Holy Spirit that brings us into the fellowship of Christ's death and resurrection. It is the Holy Spirit who causes us to be born again, regenerated, giving us a new nature. It is through the applying work of the Holy Spirit that Christ's blood and righteousness are accounted to us and we are justified in Christ. It is through the Holy Spirit that we are assured of eternal life. The Holy Spirit ministering with our spirits that we are indeed children of God. This Spirit is the Spirit of truth who enlightens us. And it is the Spirit who sanctifies us. He is the Holy Spirit. And what happens to those whom He indwells is He makes us holy, conforming us unto the image of Jesus Christ. And so it is in the Spirit, because of the Spirit's ministry, that, as it were, all the blessings of that age to come, the blessings of the kingdom, which Christ has secured, now come into our experience. With the Spirit's coming, the new age has dawned. And so the Spirit, uh, as it were, brings us into that new age. He he produces in us uh, uh, this new life, conduct that that the the Scriptures are going to call the fruit of the Spirit that is in keeping with that new age. And so what the Holy Spirit does is He 
comes and he doesn't, uh, uh, um, uh, doesn't work outside of our human activity, but rather the Spirit comes into our lives. He indwells us and he arouses us and brings us to life in the mind, the will, the affections, the body, bringing us in service to Jesus Christ. And so our text here, coming to our text finally here in verse 16, he says here to these Christians who are now to live out the Christian life, he says, but I say, walk by the Spirit. Uh, the word walk there is, is it's the idea of how we live our lives, how our day-to-day -day lives are to be uh, conducted. It, it includes the idea of progress. To take a walk is to move from one place uh, to another. And as we go through our Christian lives, how is progress to be made? It is to be made as we live in the Spirit. The Spirit indwelling us. The Spirit surrounding us. The Spirit being our guide. We are to walk in Him. And it is only, dear friends, as we are in the Holy Spirit that those natural sinful desires of the human flesh can be, uh, 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 can be mortified or can be put to death. The Holy Spirit alone enables us to say no to our sinful fleshly desires. And that's really the idea here behind uh, the word flesh. Remember last week we saw that the word flesh doesn't simply refer to our bodies, but rather it refers ultimately to our sinful natures. And it describes our flesh here as having uh, desires that seek to be gratified. It is life that is lived in rebellion against God, life lived in darkness, life lived for the self, a kind of life according to the flesh that produces the works of the flesh. Uh, that you see in verses 19 through 21 that we'll look at next week. Things like sexual immorality and impurity and sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgy, and things like these. These are the works of the flesh. That is what we are by nature. How is it that we stop living in that way? Well, it is only by the powerful supernatural activity of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We cannot escape these works of the flesh on our own. We can't simply on our own decide to uh, turn over a new leaf, to, to turn into a new chapter in our lives, to reform ourselves and make ourselves better. No, it is only as we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit that we will then cease to gratify the desires of the sinful flesh. Well, the necessity of the Holy Spirit. Let me just apply this in a couple of ways. Perhaps some of you here are, to, are here today. And as I described very briefly, these works of the flesh, you begin to think, you know, that looks an awful lot like my life. How can I be saved from, really, ultimately from myself? this dreadful bondage to sin, this slavery to selfishness, this wickedness of whom I have become. How is it that you can be saved from that? And here the answer is, dear friends, it is only by the Holy Spirit's power 
blown. That's how. Well, you say, well, how can I get this Holy Spirit? Well, you can't be bought with money. There's no magical formula for you to for you to recite. There's no special diet you have to go on or anything like that. But rather, dear friends, how do you get the Holy Spirit? You simply cast yourself upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You hear Christ's invitation to come to Him. All you who are weary, weary of a life under the burden of a slavery to sin, and you cast yourself upon Jesus Christ. You cry out to Him, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner and I am in need of a Savior. Save me from my sin. And the promise is that to all who have looked in truth to Jesus Christ as Savior, each and every one of them, then has the Holy Spirit come dwell in them. It's not only some Christians. It's not only a select few who are really holy. But everyone who belongs to Jesus Christ has a spirit in them. And it is this spirit alone who can change us from the inside out, and who can enable us by His grace to say no to the desires of the flesh. And in this Holy Spirit, all the blessings of salvation, including those blessings of putting away the old man and being remade in Christ's image, that blessing also is yours. So, dear friends, if you want to be saved from yourself, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Receive the Holy Spirit. But let me just say another word of application. For those who have cast yourself on Christ, I just want to say to you, can you recognize what a precious gift the Holy Spirit is? Oh, what a wonderful gift we have been given. You know, if somebody were today to say, hey, I want to give you a gift today. I have a a beachfront house in Hawaii. Gorgeous home, beautiful weather all the time. It's even on a golf course. It can be yours, no cost to yourself. And you get a million dollars a year on top of it, so you never have to work another day in your life. Um. I don't, throw in a personal chef as well. I don't know what other things appeal to you. Throw it all in there. Everything that you can think of that you would really like, throw it all in there. Do you know that gift, that gift would pale in comparison to the gift of the Holy Spirit. A beachfront house in Hawaii can't deal with the problem of your sinful flesh. It can't solve that. But the Holy Spirit can. The Holy Spirit can remake you in the image of Christ, and He's doing that even now. What a gift. What a gift the Spirit is. Do you appreciate that gift? Do you you thank the Lord for it? There's a wonderful hymn, Henry Francis Light. He says, Think what spirit dwells within thee. What a Father's smile is thine. What a Savior died to win thee. Child of heaven, shouldst thou repine. Dear friends, let us be thankful for the absolute necessity of the Holy Spirit for the Christian life. Secondly, now secondly, I want us to consider the absolute reality of inward conflict. 
the absolute reality of inward uh, conflict. You know, we've talked so far of the Spirit's work and have, how the Spirit helps us to say no to the desires of the, of the flesh. And, and it would be easy at this point to think that the Christian life, well, it must just be one spiritual triumph after another. Well, verse 17 comes in. And it says, it isn't the case. Yes, you have the Holy Spirit. But when the Holy Spirit, who enables you to say no to the flesh, comes into your life, what actually begins in your life at that moment is a warfare. Because we have the Spirit drawing us unto holiness, but we also find in our hearts something, a kind of compulsion, that is also drawing us back into sin. And that's what's described here in verse 17. He then goes on to say, for the desires of the flesh, notice he doesn't say they all disappear when the Spirit comes. He doesn't say that, no. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit that are real and true and living in us, those are against the flesh. And these two are opposed to each other. And then he says, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Suddenly, when you become a Christian, there is a kind of warfare that goes on in your heart. A kind of conflict between the spirit and the flesh. Our own Westminster Confession of Faith speaks of this so, so helpfully in chapter 13 in paragraph 2 of the confession where it says that our sanctification is throughout in the whole man and yet it is imperfect in this life, there abiding still some remnants of corruption in every part. Whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war. And then reflecting the language of verse 17, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Do you see what it's saying is that when the Lord sanctifies us, it happens in every part of our being, our minds, our wills, our emotions, our bodies. We're changed in every part of who we are, and yet in every part of who we are, we continue to find remnants of that old corrupt nature. And there's a war. And there's a conflict that goes on. This is why Martin Luther liked to speak of the Christian as Samuel Justus et Peccator, at the same time justified and sinner. Christian life is not always easy. And there's a kind of psychological conflict that goes on to that. You, you get the idea here when it says that these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. It sort of reflects what Paul says in Romans chapter 7, which is the other great passage that speaks of this warfare that goes on in the life of the believer. Just listen to me for, listen, uh, for a moment to Romans 7, beginning at verse 14. Paul says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. 
For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. No, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And I read that really fast, and it's going to be hard for you to piece together what he's saying, but I think that's part of Paul's point. He's sort of saying, psychologically, I can't figure this out. I feel like there are just sort of these competing desires. And yes, I want to be holy. I want to be all for Jesus. But on the other hand, I find myself pulled in all of these other directions. You know, I want to be a forgiving person, but I'm finding it really hard to forgive that person. I, I really want to be, be holy, but there's a lot of other things I'd rather do today than read my Bible or pray. And we find pulled ourselves pulled in a whole variety of directions and it impacts our psychology. And it's a kind of conflict, a war zone that is going on in our own minds. That's what he says happens in the life of the Christian. Let me just make three additional points about this from our text here. The first of them is this, is that this conflict is a per- peculiarly Christian conflict. What I mean by that is this, is that the unbeliever does not engage in this same kind of warfare. Now, there are many people who aren't Christians who who very well might say, well, I don't like the person that I am, or I want to do better at, at certain things in my life, or there are certain aspects of who I am that I'm trying to change, I'm trying to, trying to uh, uh, work on certain things, so many people say that kind of thing, but, but for them, it's not ultimately a spiritual struggle for them. You see, for the Christian, it's ultimately, when we become a Christian, it's that I am now have the Holy Spirit who is conforming me to the image of Jesus Christ, and yet I still have an old sinful nature that's taking me the other way. So it's a, it's a peculiarly Christian conflict. And so to become a Christian means... Welcome to the war zone. Secondly, this conflict is lifelong. It's lifelong. In other words, not a single Christian is going to be perfectly sanctified on this side of glory. We're going to experience flesh lusting against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, until that day when the Lord Jesus Christ through our death or through his return, takes us to be with himself. And then, remaining corruption is going to be gone. But until that point, this conflict is going to go on. You know, and this, this, this ought to be a, maybe a word of encouragement to some of you who have been Christians for a long time, because sometimes you're a Christian for, well, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years, 60 years, and you think, you know, I should have some of these sins licked by now. Why am I still struggling with these things? Why is this still so hard? Well, the Bible says that there's going to be this continual warfare until glory. We're going to continue to struggle. We're going to continue to find certain things hard. We're going to continue to fall into certain sins. So I want to say to you, don't give up hope in this struggle just because it's been going on a long time. 
But can I say as well that if you've gotten to a point where you find that you aren't struggling anymore, you need to beware because perhaps you've kind of made an appeasement with some of your sin. You know, you think of, think of Hitler before World War II, right? That dreadful Munich conference and the kind of appeasement that was made. Hitler, you want the Rhineland? Go ahead, take it. Hitler, you want Austria? We're not going to do anything about it. Terrible kind of appeasement, right? And here, we can also make a kind of appeasement with our sin. Flesh, you want, you want that area of my life? You want my tongue, uh, my bad language? You want those lustful thoughts? You want just that, that complaining that comes up? You can have it. And, and sometimes, perhaps, if we're not feeling any conflict or struggle, it's because we've kind of given up in certain areas. And we need to continue to fight. We need to continue to do battle. That's what we're told. We need, ought not to cede ground to the flesh. Let me just read another poem. For none, O Lord, have perfect rest. For none are wholly free from sin. And they who fain would love thee or serve thee best are conscious most of wrong within. So sometimes to grow in holiness is to even become increasingly conscious of the sin that yet dwells within and to fight against it. And so the conflict is to be a lifelong conflict. And this leads to the third point I want to say under this second heading still, that we then, as Christians, must view our daily lives as war. We must view our daily lives as war. Now, I want to be careful here. This is not the only rubric in which to view the Christian life. Okay? When we become a Christian, we also experience a peace that passes understanding. As a Christian, we experience a wonderful joy that floods our hearts. As a Christian, we experience even a kind of rest a rest in Jesus Christ, a rest from trying to justify ourselves, resting in His finished work. And so all of those things are true. But when it comes to our battle against sin, we need to remember as well that we are in a war and there is a conflict going on. And that today, at this moment in fact, you are in the middle of a battle. Spirit against the flesh, the flesh against the spirit. So when we come to worship, for example, when we gather here as the Lord's people, it's not just to sing a few nice songs and to hear a few nice words and to kind of endure it all sort of half asleep. But rather, we come here to engage in warfare because the devil is here and he's trying to snatch that word before it's sown. And you have a flesh that is warring against the things that you hear, not wanting to put them into practice. And, and we prepare for worship by saying, Lord, I'm ready to prepare for the war today. Help me to fight. Help me to lay hold of these things with my mind and apply them in my heart and put sin to death today, Lord. Help me to do it. We go through our lives. You know, maybe uh, we're uh, today tempted just to let our, our tongues a little bit loose today, <laughs> to cuss or to complain. 
And we just kind of go on with life. In reality, we need to remember, we need to do war against that with our tongues. Our tongues were not made for that. Remember what James reminds us? These little members called the tongues are full of of all sorts of evil. They're like a little spark that sets a forest on fire. With the same tongue, we, we bless God and we curse man who's made in the image of God. And this ought not to be. And so we say, today, Lord, help me not just to rest content with the sins of my tongue, but to do battle against them. To turn my tongue into an agent of blessing and of consecration to you. We go through our day, instead of allowing men, allowing our eyes to wander, and for thoughts to go through our heads that ought not about about other women, we, we instead need to say, Lord, I remember that you say that even to... To look at a woman lustfully is to have committed adultery with her. And Lord, by your grace, I'm going to make a covenant with my eyes today, Lord. I'm not going to sin against you in this way. And it's a war. We say, Lord, I'm going to fight today against this this sin. Or maybe for you, the the sin that you sometimes rest easily with is, is the sin of really falling into such an emotional kind of state of of depression where you are despising yourself because you say, well, you know, I'm not as popular or I'm not as pretty, I'm not as smart or talented as these other people. And you become all depressed about that. And what you need to do is to say, Lord, help me to think godly and accurate thoughts with my mind. And today, Lord, I need to remember that I am made in the image of God and that what matters most is not how I compare to these other people in terms of how I look or how smart I am, but what matters most is that Christ has died for me on Calvary's cross. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, in my mind today, fight the warfare of my thoughts to have them focused on you, to think godly thoughts and to have godly emotions. Things like that, friends. This is what I'm talking about. Daily warfare against our sin. We enter into a war zone every day, each and every day. And we are called to fight. And in fighting, we are to put to death our sinful nature, say no to the desires of the flesh. In fighting, we are to seek to bring to life righteousness. These two always go hand in hand. Seek to clothe ourselves with godliness. Walking by the Spirit, say no to the flesh and its desires. Let's engage in this warfare. That's the second absolute truth of the Christian life, the absolute reality of this inward conflict. Absolute necessity of the Spirit, absolute reality of the conflict. Thirdly now, third, third, the absolute certainty of final victory. Brothers and sisters, the absolute certainty of final victory. I think this passage actually ends in an extraordinary amount of hope. Before we read verse 18, let me just, let me just say this. You know, when we fight as Christians, when we fight for the Lord, we do so knowing that the victory ultimately is His. That's our attitude when we talk about engaging in the fight, as it were, engaging in the war that is that is out there, you know, against this world and the enemies of unbelief, of secularism, of false religion, what do we say? We say, well, we're going to go out, we're going to preach the gospel, 
We're going to seek to live as Christians, and we know that however small and weak the church seems today, we know that Christ is going to get the victory. It's going to be His. All those for whom Christ died are going to be brought into the church, and the church is going to still be standing on that final day. And so in terms of the enemies out there, we say, yes, the victory is certain, and that's how we we labor in light of that, right? Well, dear friends, the same as it is true for the enemies out there, it's also true for the enemies that are in here. Those enemies that we find in the depths of our heart. Those sins that we so struggle with. We have to believe that even though, however fierce that conflict may be today, however some days it seems that I'm giving in in ways that I ought not to be giving in, I can be confident that if I am in Jesus Christ, the victory ultimately is His. It's His. He, through all these ups and downs of my life, is causing me to make progress in holiness, and someday he's going to glorify me where I'm going to be in his presence sinless forever and ever. And we labor now, we engage in the fight in view of that day. Now, where do I get that from verse 18? Let's look. Verse 18 says this, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. What does this mean? Well, the Christian is one who is led by the Spirit. We're going to come to that in just a second. Follow the logic. If you are led by the Spirit, so if you are truly a Christian, you are not under the law. Now you say, wait a second, what does that mean? Well, first of all, what it doesn't mean, when it says you are not under the law, it doesn't mean that the law ceases to function as a guide for the kind of life that the Lord wants you to live. Hey, just, what, three verses earlier, four verses earlier, he said that the law is summed up, (laughs) you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He didn't ditch the law, right? Okay, so whatever it means, it doesn't mean that the law no longer has any relevance or validity for the Christian. Well, what does it mean then when it says you are not under the law? Well, what it means is this. You are not under the law in terms of thinking of the law apart from the Spirit. That is, as just me standing before the law of God. And if that's all that there is, then that law is that which condemns me, and the law continually says, I am not good enough, I have not reached the standard of holiness that I am to reach, And that law keeps me in bondage. So it is saying, if you are thinking of your life in terms of simply you living the best life that you can, doing it on your own, you're doomed, you're doomed, you're doomed. You're under the law. But if you are in the Spirit, that is no longer your position to the law. You are no longer condemned by the law. You are no longer under the law's slavery because Christ Jesus has set you free from that. He's redeemed you from that. The Spirit is now dwelling in you, changing you from the inside out. And that's the point, is that we are no longer in that helpless, a hopeless 
condition of being under the law. Instead, we are those who are guided by the Spirit. We are led by the Spirit. What a beautiful phrase that is. That as Christians, we are those who have the Spirit with us. We're walking with Him. We are led by Him wherever we go. Now, it's important here that we don't misunderstand what being led by the Spirit means. Some people think, well, to be led by the Spirit means that the Spirit talks to you audibly in a voice or that the Spirit uh, uh, gives you certain impulses apart from the Word of God, which you then must follow. And people will use that kind of language. The Spirit told me this. This is what the Spirit is, is, is leading me to do. Well, dear friends, that's not how the Spirit works. The Spirit works according to the Word that He inspired, the Word of God. So we believe that the Spirit is very active in our lives, but what does this Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit leads us to the Word of God. The Spirit enlightens our minds in what the Word of God says. The Spirit shows us our sin so that we will flee to Jesus Christ. The Spirit causes us to see the beauty of our Savior. The Spirit leads us to the place of repentance. The Spirit... Uh, enables us to see how Scripture applies to our lives. That's how the Spirit leads us. And eventually, the Spirit is going to lead us all the way into the presence of Jesus Christ in glory. That's what it means to be led by the Holy Spirit. And what a blessed condition it is, dear friends. Because again, no matter how great the conflict, you know, the, the Spirit leads us right now, right through the middle of the war zone, okay? The Spirit's leading us, but it's in all the places, okay, we have, as it were, it feels like cannons going off on every side. There's landmines that we're trying to watch out for. You know, there's all this kind of stuff. We're trying to watch our step. We're taking some missteps. We need to repent and flee to Jesus Christ again. We, we're trying to make our way, but the Spirit is leading us the whole way. And the Spirit who's leading us now is going to bring us home to glory. And that we can be absolutely assured of if you are in Jesus Christ. He will do that. Victory is absolutely certain. And that makes all the difference as we walk through this life. Again, it doesn't make us less aware of the warfare, but it affects how we fight. Because it means that when we do sin, and when we understand our sin, we confess our sin and we repent of our sin and we turn to Jesus Christ for healing and we <coughs> say, <coughs> Lord, now lead me by your Spirit in the way that I should go. Lord, help me to obey you. And we can be confident that He is going to answer prayers like that and that He is going to help us. And friends, Christian after Christian before you has testified that the Spirit is not one who leads His people but He's with us to the very end. Can we not labor? Can we not fight in light of that glorious confidence that the Spirit is going to lead us all of the way? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for these truths of the Christian life. Thank You, Lord, for the Holy Spirit, how necessary the Spirit is 
Thank you, Lord, that even amidst this conflict that we fight, that you are with us. And we pray, O gracious God, that by the power of your Spirit, that we would not give up the fight. That we would continue to fight, fight hard to the end, by your grace, by your power. We pray, O Lord, that we would remember always that the victory is certain in Jesus Christ. O Lord, our God in heaven, use this, your word, in our hearts and our souls, even now. Bless us as we come to the table now this morning, for we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, uh, David was one who was truly a child of God and yet experienced this conflict between the flesh and the spirit in very real ways, even falling into sin. And it was David who penned a great psalm of repentance. It's Psalm 51 that we find in our Bibles. And that's a psalm that we're going to sing now. Might we, along with David, sing these words, seeking for the Lord's mercy amidst our sin, but seeking as well for the Spirit's help. We're going to sing in the fifth stanza. Pass me not away from thee, let thy Spirit dwell in me. Might that be our prayer truly. We're going to sing Psalter 51C, and we're going to sing stanzas 1 through 5, and we'll stand to sing. Thank you. 
Seated. We come today to the Lord's table. I'm going to read the words of institution uh, out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Uh, Brothers and sisters, we have come today to the Lord's table. It is not uh, simply my table or your table or even this church's table. It is the table which the Lord Jesus Christ Himself has set and has invited us to, to eat and to drink in communion with Him and in anticipation of that day when He shall return. So I do invite to this table today to find spiritual nourishment and sustenance, all of you who have professed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, looking uh, not to yourself, but to Him alone for your salvation. If you have done that, and have professed your faith publicly and are a baptized believer in good standing in the church of Jesus Christ, I invite you to this table today. Come and welcome. But if that is not you, uh, today you can just, as the plate comes, just pass it along to the next person and, uh, they, uh, uh, and, and don't partake of the elements today. But might it be that soon uh, you would come to believe in Jesus Christ and profess your faith in Him. And join us at this table. Let's now look to the Lord together in prayer. Lord, our God and Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this table that you have established, you have set for us, for our spiritual nourishment and growth and grace. We do pray, O Lord, that as we come to this table today, that we would come here with a faith that is assured that Jesus Christ is a Savior for sinners just like me. Lord, we confess our many sins before you. We confess, even as Christians, we have sinned against you in so many ways. If you should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But we give you thanks that with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. O Lord, Bless us as we come to this table today. Strengthen us, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. On the same night in which Jesus was betrayed, He took bread, and after giving thanks, He broke it, and He gave it to His disciples. As I am ministering in His name, give it unto you. And He said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. As you receive the bread, you can... uh, Take a piece off and hold on to it, and we'll eat together uh, at my direction.
Brothers and sisters, Christ's body was broken for you. Let us eat of the bread together. In the same manner, also after supper, he took the cup, and after giving thanks, as has been done in his name, he gave it to his disciples. And he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink from it, all of you. And so uh, we, the, the inner circle of the cup is wine. The outer circle is grape juice. And uh, we can, um, again, hold on to the cup, and we'll drink it together at my direction. partake of the cup together. Let's pray. Lord, our God in heaven, we thank you for Christ's 
body and blood for his redeeming work, for this great love that has been shown to us, not only in dying for our sins, but also giving us the Holy Spirit, the one who applies all of Christ's finished work and the one apart from we cannot even begin to live this Christian life. Oh, Holy Spirit, we bless you and thank you. Now draw near to us, we pray. Deepen our devotion to you. Might we have a closer walk with our God, even in these coming weeks. Lord, help us to say no to indwelling sin and grant that we would truly walk by the Spirit. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. We're going to now take up our deacon's offering. This offering goes to help those both inside and outside of our congregation with various material and temporal needs. Let us now stand and sing. We're going to sing the sixth stanza of Psalter 51C. benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.